0: Hey y'all, you're listening to the Faith Church Sermon Podcast. We are so excited that you're connecting with us today. It is our desire for you to grow as a result of the resources we provide here. We pray that this blesses you today as you seek to know Him more. Well, we've been going through the Bible together in 2022. We're almost to the end. We've almost made this long journey, friends. But from the beginning, really, as we've tracked through Scripture, a question has been starting to form, this question that's begging to be asked, really from the first Pages, when we're told to believe that God with just a word spoke everything into existence, that all of creation came with just God speaking, this question is formed. And as we've gone through each section of the Bible, it continues to grow. And if you're a skeptic like me, you think about this stuff and you want the answer to this question. And the question is this, does God, does God have the power to do everything that he's promised? Because this book that we've been going through, this book is full of promises. For centuries, God has been making promises to his people. And if you're like me, if you're a Christ follower, we've pinned all of our hopes on the promises that are in this book. Promises like Jesus can save us from our sin. Promises like Jesus is going to come back one day and, and save us from this mess. We've put everything for this life and the next, we've put everything into these promises and God's ability to fulfill these promises. And so it seems to me like we better make pretty darn sure that God has the power to keep his promises. And so today we're going to talk about the power of God. I just wanna show you this scene, this picture of God's power, and sort of just submit it to you, and you decide for yourself, does God have the power to keep his promises? Because if he doesn't, or if he does, that's a pretty big deal. So let's talk about God's power, and we're gonna do it in Revelation 19. So if you got a Bible with you, get it out, turn it on, go Revelation 19, go all the way to the end of your Bible and turn left, and you will find Revelation chapter 19. Revelation is, it's a pretty interesting book. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time explaining it. Pastor Joe did this last week, and I thought he did a great job. It was so helpful. So if you missed that, or maybe you heard it, go back and listen to it again. At least the first 10 minutes of his message last week, super helpful in understanding the book of Revelation as, as a whole. But what it is, is it's a vision. The apostle John, who when he was on earth, when Jesus was on earth, this was his best friend, this guy named John. Jesus' best friend. The Apostle John has a vision. God gives him a vision of the things to come when Christ is fully revealed. When Christ returns to the earth, he has a vision of what that is and really the culmination of sort of this world. The scene that we're gonna look at today is kind of the end of all things. It's all come to this moment. You're going to have this battle between good and evil. And all of the scriptures has been leading up to this moment. And I wanna show you just a glimpse of God's power, find out if God has the power to keep his promises. Because if he doesn't, everything that we've been talking about for the last year is basically meaningless and we've wasted our our whole time together. But if God does have the power to keep his promises, well, that's something entirely different. So let me show you Revelation chapter 19 and What John is going to see, it seems to me, it seems to me like this is a glimpse into heaven at the end of the world. Revelation 19, verse one, here's what it says. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven. John is looking into heaven, he's describing, he's writing what he's seeing. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, shouting Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. He gives us this glimpse into heaven and what he sees and what he hears is people shouting hallelujah And Hallelujah means praise the Lord. He sees people, he hears the heavens calling out, praise the Lord, they're worshiping God. Now, this is interesting. It's interesting that this is the word that he hears, people shouting, praise the Lord, because he's writing to a group of Christians who are living under Roman oppression. And the leader of Rome, the emperor of Rome at the time, is this guy named Domitian. Domitian is a nasty guy. He's the most powerful man in the world. And Domitian demands that people call him. Are you ready for it? He demands that people call him Lord and God. And so what John is seeing, he's describing and writing to the people who would get this letter from him. It's almost like he's saying, let me tell you about the real Lord, the real God. It's not Domitian. Domitian is just a man who's in charge. It's almost like he takes away power from Domitian or any other earthly ruler. He goes, Let me put it in the right place on God. Let me show you who the real God is. Because you think Domitian has power? Let me show you what real power looks like. It looks like the heavens worshiping, all proclaiming the glory of God. It's a mass of people that he sees, right? They're all shouting. Praise the Lord. This is where real praise, this is where real glory and honor belong is with God. It's a glimpse into his power. Keep going, look at verse four. Verse four says, the 24 elders, again, we're still getting a glimpse into heaven, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on his throne, and they cried, similar thing, they cried, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Here it is again. Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. I love this. There's this little phrase. It's almost a little throwaway phrase. You might miss it, both great and small. God is the God of both great and small. How powerful is he? He's so powerful that he is the God of the most powerful person in the world. He is the king over the most powerful authorities, and he's so powerful that he cares for the least among us, the people who are the most insignificant. God is God over everyone and all things. Verse six says Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters. And like loud peals of thunder, they were shouting. I love this scene, because what's being described is a mass of humanity, a sea of people and all of creation, and they are praising God, and they're doing it. They're shouting, this is loud, this is Big. This isn't like glimpse into heaven and people are just kind of whispering hymns and poems and strumming on their harps and it's like this gentle sort of thing. Like these are people shouting for God. They're so excited. You ever been in like a, uh, maybe in a sporting event or something, you're in a stadium and there's 50, 60, there's 100,000 people and they're all chanting, right? You can feel it. It's like rattling your chest. You can feel it, right? Or If you've been at a concert and maybe, you know, 10,000 people are singing in unison, it's inspiring, right? It's contagious, you wanna be a part of it, it's big. That's what's going on in this scene in heaven. It's not gentle, it's not timid, it's not mild, it's not people sitting on their hands, it's people shouting. It's all of creation worshiping with everything they've got, shouting hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. And again, John is trying to point us to God's power. This word right here, reign, means to, to exercise the highest level of authority. It's all about showcasing God's power. Again, John is writing these people at the end of the first century, and he's saying, this guy who thinks he rules the world, this Domitian, let me tell you, he doesn't reign, Right? John is saying, I'm looking into the future, and here's what I'm telling you God reigns, evil doesn't reign, shame doesn't reign. Poverty doesn't reign. Divorce doesn't reign. Broken relationships don't reign. Racism doesn't reign. Sadness and depression don't reign, right? No, he goes, I'm looking, I'm getting this glimpse, and it is God who reigns. There is a day, he says, where God fully reigns. This is the vision that John is having, where all of heaven is gathered and worshiping the one true God who is worthy of that kind of worship and praise. It's a pretty cool scene, it's God's power on display that all of creation would worship him. But the skeptic in me reads that and goes okay, like that's cool, great, God you can draw a crowd, awesome, people are excited, they're singing, that's that's great, but God you made a bunch of promises for centuries, you've been making promises to your people I wanna know whether you can keep those promises if you have the power to fulfill the things that you've said. And so John is going to continue. He's going to tell us a story, another picture of what he sees. Watch this story and watch God's power. Verse 11, John writes this. Then I saw heaven, right? So he had seen this display of worship. Here's what happens next. He says, I saw heaven standing open, And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. So John sees this vision. He sees into heaven, and coming out of heaven is a white horse, and on this horse is a rider. Who is the person riding the horse? It's Jesus, and John gives us a bunch of clues that tell us it's Jesus. The eyes that are blazing like fire, if you go back to Revelation 1, that's how John described Jesus, eyes blazing like fire, and he talks about this rider has a name that is so deep that no one knows, right? God's infinite depth, Christ's infinite depth is so much that we can't even fully comprehend his name. He calls the rider on the horse the word of God. Remember how John starts his gospel? Just write John 1 in your notes. Go look at it later. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John often refers to Jesus as the word of God. And so he's telling us that in this vision, it's Jesus coming out of heaven, riding on this white horse. Again, this is all building to display God's power. He, he tells us what Jesus is up to, what's going on here in verse 14. It says, the armies of heaven were following him, were following Jesus, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. So, apparently he's going to war. He's going, he's riding to a battle, right? Because he's got armies with him, the armies of heaven. Now, who are the armies of heaven? This is God's people. This is the bride of Christ. We know that because John uses language about they're dressed in fine linen, White and clean clothing, right? He's used that language before for us, for the bride of Christ. That's who he's talking about. And so Jesus is going into battle, and God's people are joining him on the battlefield. Verse 16, on his robe, on Jesus' robe, and on his thigh, he has this name written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. John is continuing to make these subtle statements about the power of Jesus. There is no one like him. He is the king of kings. It's like John saying, I know that there are powerful people among you. There are rulers and authorities that you're under. No matter how powerful, they're nothing. They're just kings. He is, this Jesus is the king of kings. I know there are people among you who call themselves lord or who lord over you. Oh, this guy is the lord of lords. He's above all of it. It's like John is trying to even personalize this, to slow down, even with you and I, to say, I know there are things in your life that seem to have authority, that seem to control you, that seem to be winning. Those things are all subject to Jesus, He is king of kings and lord of lords. And Jesus is so confident that he's like tattooed with this phrase, king of kings and lord of lords. You better be powerful enough to back it up if you're going to put it on your body. Watch this, verse 19. John says, then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies, they gathered together to wage war against this rider on his horse and his army. Well, we're gonna find out if Jesus has any power. Because everyone's gathered to fight. This is like, it's like the scene in the final Avengers movie, right? Captain Marvel and Captain America, Iron Man are all there and they're like, we don't know if this is enough. So Black Panther shows up and here comes Thor. And they're like, they're gonna fight. Like this is the moment, right? This is that super, superhero battle scene where they're going to fight. It's, it's good versus evil. And you imagine there's gonna, be this, there's gonna be this back and forth. Good is gonna be on top and then evil and, and there's gonna be this back and forth. And you hope that in the end, good wins. Jesus' revelation says that Jesus is going to fight against a beast and a false prophet. Who are these people? I don't know. It's possible that they're actual individuals. I think we could at least say they represent evil in the world. They represent evil systems in the world, corrupt systems and just ways of the world. Kind of the world order. Jesus is going up against that. It's good versus evil. Here we go. Verse 20. They're gathered to wage war. It says, but the beast was captured and with the beast, the false prophet, who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The two of them, the beast and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the rest were killed, the rest of the armies were killed with the sword that was coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds came and gorged on their flesh. What we get is that Jesus is so powerful He's so powerful, there's not even a fight. There's not even a battle. There is no back and forth. The army of Jesus never has to lift a finger. The beast, the false prophet, Jesus grabs them. He chucks them into hell. They have no chance. They're totally out of the picture. They are done, and their army's with them. No fight, no battle. John is showing us Jesus' power, he's showing us that in time, when Jesus is ready, he merely has to say the word. It's like just in a moment, and he has power over everything. He has power over all evil. He has power over all authorities. He has power over all the evil forces that are against him and his people and all the brokenness in our world in a moment without a fight, without a battle, it's over. John is showing us, in this picture, he's showing us the power that God has, that Jesus doesn't even have to fight, but he still has something else to do because, okay, cool, he's defeated these dark forces of evil, but the prince of darkness himself still remains. What about Satan, right? There's Satan, and if Jesus cannot defeat Satan, none of this matters If if Jesus can't defeat Satan, then the promises that God has made throughout the scriptures cannot be trusted. He has to have the power to keep all of his promises. And it brings us to this moment, all that has brought us to this moment in the text. Because go back to the beginning. Let me take you back and connect way back to the beginning for just a moment. You remember the beginning of the Bible? We were there a year ago. Adam and Eve, and God are in the Garden of Eden, and it's it's paradise, right? Except this snake enters, enters the picture. We don't know where the snake came from. At the time, we don't know who the snake is. We don't know what he's up to or what his purpose is. Later, we find out this is Satan, But but, but the snake shows up, and the snake starts to challenge everything that God has said, right? God told Adam and Eve, Um, not to eat from this one tree, right? Everything else is yours. There's just this one tree. Don't eat fruit from that that one tree, but everything else. This is your playground. Have at it. It's awesome. It's all for you. Here you go. And just don't eat from that tree. The snake comes on the scene and starts to challenge. He goes, wait a minute. What did God say? God said that if you eat a piece of fruit, you're gonna die. Really? Like, come on. Do you really believe that? And you know how the story goes. Adam and Eve give into temptation, and they eat from this, this one tree. They break the one rule that God had for them. And in a moment, everything changes, right? Just like God said, there would be consequences. And now life is going to be hard. It's going to be hard work, and there's going to be pain, and there's going to be conflict, and there's going to be sickness, and there's going to even be death. This is all because of this snake. The snake comes in, enters the picture, and brings in evil, and with him brings in But in that moment, God makes a promise to his people and to the snake. He makes this promise in Genesis 3. You can write Genesis 3.15 in your margin of your Bible there and go back and look at it. In Genesis 3, here's what he says. He speaks to the snake and God makes a promise and he says, you messed with my kids. I'm going to ruin your life. I'm going to make it absolutely miserable. He tells the snake, he tells Satan, that you're going, to, you're going to snap, you're going to bite at their heels. Basically, you'll have some victories along the way. It's going to feel to you sometimes like you're winning, but oh, in the end, I'm gonna crush you. He says, I'm going to crush your head. Well, all of that, all that we've journeyed through has brought us to this moment, we're going to find out, can God crush Satan Can he make good on everything that he's promised? Because if he can't, then what do we also have to go back and question about whether he has the power to do? Can he do it? Revelation 20 verse seven tells the story. Oh, and just side note really fast. So Revelation 20 uh, starts with these six verses that talk about this, this thousand year period, and I'm certain that some of you are like itching for me to dive into that. Here's the deal scholars, men and women, um, who've lived long before us, who are far smarter than you and I, I know it's hard to believe, they're out there though, they're far smarter than you and I, they've studied this, and they can't agree. What is this thousand years, when is it, where is it? So we're certainly not gonna solve it today, okay? So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna skip right past it. Verse seven, here we go. (laughs) It says this. It says, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gag and Magog, and gather them for battle. In number, these armies, they are like the sand on the seashore. They march across the breadth of the earth, and they surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves. Here it is again. We've got another battle, and this is the big one, right? Right? This is the end of Avengers right here. Now Doctor Strange comes in, Ant-Man's showing up. Like, it's legit. Now, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. It's okay. It reads like a comic book. Like, this is the superheroes. They're coming to battle. Who's going to win? Good and evil. What is this back and forth going to look like? Because what hinges on it, can God defeat Satan? What hinges on it is every promise that God has ever made. Satan has God's people surrounded. He has armies, so many, they're like the sand on the seashore. Listen, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had also been thrown. They will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. God is so powerful that, again, there's no battle. Even against Satan, who fancies himself a rival of God, he is no rival because God, like snapping his fingers, Satan is thrown into hell forever and ever. And God made good on his original promise that he would crush the head of the snake. This is God's power on display. And throughout the Bible, he's been dripping in glimpses of his power in hopes that we would learn to trust him that we would see his character that we would know he's powerful that we would know he's trustworthy and so God said things like watch me part an ocean watch me hold the sun in the sky watch me defeat a giant watch me calm a storm watch me bring the dead back to life Drip, drip 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 over and over that we would see his power so he could get us to this moment where he would fully reveal the power that he has, his greatest enemy, Satan, who brings evil and death upon God's children. God barely has to lift a finger. There is no battle, and it's over. And we get the answer to our question, does God have the power to keep his promises? Does he have the power to do the things that he said he's going to do? The answer is overwhelmingly yes. We don't worship some weak God. We worship a God who, with a word, can crush evil and death once and for all. I mean, are you with me? Like, this is incredible. We think of God, so often we think of God the Father, and we think of, like, this grandpa, and he's this kind of older, wiser guy, and some days he's really loving, and other days he's kind of crabby, and he has this son, Jesus, who's a total hippie, and it's like, no, this is (laughs) warrior Jesus, This is the God that we worship. This is the God we serve who stands victorious. This is our God. He's worshiped by all of creation. Everyone and everything on earth and in the heavens who goes into battle with his bride and who is able to defeat sin and death without even fighting. Do you see it? This is what John wants us to see, that one day Jesus rides into battle And he defeats not just what is broken, but the one who has broken things. That one day pain and sadness and sickness and even death are defeated. And Jesus stands victorious. And this vision, John writes this vision so that you and I would have confidence in this God. That we would see, at least in part, this vision would show us how powerful he really is, that we would see God's power and we would know that we could trust him to keep his promises. So if it's partly, John's writing partly for us, what do we do with it? I mean, it's a cool scene, right? This, this battle that isn't the battle. It's cool to know that, that it's encouraging to know that God can win without even, without even a fight, right? But you go, okay, cool. Does it mean anything to us at all? Other than, all right, great, God is powerful. Like, does that intersect with our daily lives? With you and me right now, does this story have an impact on our life? It, actually, it does in tons of ways. And I want to just give you a couple ways, because I know that we've heard this We've probably heard this before. You've talked about and seeing God's power, and yet how does it intersect with our lives? Just every day, just today, right? We're all getting ready for Christmas. We're busy. We're trying to get to the end of the, end of the year. It's, it's just kind of a chaotic time. We've got lots to do. You've got Christmas shopping. you got to clean the house. The in-laws are coming to town. You're worried about family drama. Just all this stuff that's going on over the next couple of weeks. Like, Does this have anything to do with our regular lives? And I think That it does. And so I want to just show you a couple of ways because we put God in a box of what He's capable of, and so often we get busy with our lives, and we take that box and we kind of put it over here on the shelf. Let me show you why this matters, what this scene means to our life. Just a couple things, write in your notes if you want to. Number one is this is that God wins. I mean, we've been going through the Bible for a year now. Maybe we should have started here because this is the story. God wins. Right, and when, you, when we hear that, it's almost like, I don't, I don't need to know anything else, right? I don't, I don't even need to ask any questions. God wins. Like, if you're an Eagles fan, and I, I can tell you, the, okay, the Eagles win the Super Bowl. Do you care what the score was? Do you care, like, who scored how many touchdowns? Did they win on a last second field goal? Was it a block? You don't care. You're like, sweet, my team won. Guess what? Christ follower. Your team wins. While we get to the end of this whole thing, this is how it ends. God wins, God wins, he wins over your loneliness. God defeats your depression. God defeats your cancer, he wins over poverty. God will defeat your sadness. Even if that victory doesn't come in this life, in the next, because God has even defeated death itself. And so death means being with, if you're in Christ, means being with the Lord. It's, it's already done. God's already won. There's this day coming where all that's relieved. God wins. The people who have gone before us, who have passed on from this life, who were in Christ, know that death doesn't hold them because the grave is empty. That's, that's the picture of this. God wins. He wins over everything. And so it means that the suffering you might be experiencing, even right now, in a broken relationship or whatever it is, like God wins. Okay, life's not perfect right now, but there's this day coming where all of our shame is turned to joy, and all of our fears are turned to hope. Life's not perfect, but it will be. You're on the winning side. God has the power to keep his promises, and I know sometimes we hear that. We go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard it a lot of times. God wins, but like hear it, receive it, God wins. And when you look around the world, you might feel like it seems like God's not winning, like evil's winning. I mean, it may seem like that, but good news, there's a comeback and God wins. Second, it means this. All this means that nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible for God. If you've been journeying with us through the Bible this year, we've seen these little glimpses of of his power, but it's like, man, what does God have to do to show you his greatness, his trustworthiness, his power? Because now he's done everything. He's done everything. He goes onto the battlefield to fight Satan, our enemy, and he doesn't even have to fight. Nothing is impossible for God. I I think of a, there's a story in the Old Testament in Genesis um, 18, and God is talking to Abraham and he asks him a question. It's worth us just sort of looking at these words. He says to Abraham, is anything too hard for God? When you read this story and you see what God does at the end of Revelation, is anything too hard for God? It turns out, no, right? And so you think about your own story, you think about your own journey. Is anything too hard for God? Yet, aren't there some ways, we would never actually say it out loud, but aren't there some ways that we've started to believe that there are things that might be too hard for him? That there are some things that it's like maybe, maybe it's too much. Maybe he's too busy. Maybe he can't do that. Maybe he's not going to do that. Maybe just a little bit we started to believe that. There's something about this scene and God's power and his majesty that makes me want to believe again, that makes me actually want to believe that nothing is impossible for God, that thing that, 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 that I haven't prayed about in a while because, like, I mean, honestly, I kind of gave up. God's too busy. He's doing something else. Maybe I, I need to take that back to him to believe that nothing is impossible for him. Maybe we need to have childlike faith again. This story, it inspires me to believe again that that nothing's impossible, that God can bring healing to something that's broken, that God can bring restoration to something, that God can even do a miracle if he so wants to. Is anything too hard for our Lord? I mean, this is our hope. In the power of God. It's not in the power of government to make sense out of your life. It's not in the power of having more money. It's not in the power or security of family. It's in the power of God who stands victorious. Did you choose today to see God and worship God in his power? Did you choose today to find peace and joy and comfort in the fact that Jesus is victorious? That even now, in this moment, with whatever you're going through, that you can be confident and encouraged because you know that that God wins. And if, if you don't worship this God of the Bible that we're talking about, you don't have a relationship with him, you can have one with him today. In the end, he wins. He defeats all that is broken, even death. Let me read one more time, just this scene in heaven real fast. John writes this, I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder. They were shouting, hallelujah, praise the Lord, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. So let us rejoice and let us be glad and let us give him glory. If you're able, would you stand with me and I'll pray? Our Father and our God, you are powerful. You are strong and mighty. You are above all things. You are in authority of all things on earth and in heaven. And God, we've seen today that you can be trusted, that your promises are good. So, God, when you say that you love us, we know we can trust you. When you say that you'll never leave us or forsake us, we know that we can trust you. When you say that we're your children, we can trust you. When you promise that we're a new creation through Christ, we can trust you. When you say that there's no condemnation for those who have a relationship with your son, Jesus, we can trust you. When you say that you're working out all things for good for your children, we can trust you and we know that you have the power to keep your word. God, would you help us today to see that you are strong and mighty? God, would you help us to know that you win, that we're on the right side If we are following you, God, would you help us to believe again that nothing is impossible for you, that nothing is beyond the pale, no one is beyond your love. And God, if there's parts of our heart that have hardened and that we've been skeptical and doubtful, would you soften our hearts today, God, that we would believe with that childlike faith that nothing is impossible for you, that nothing is too hard for our God. We love you, God, and we pray these things in your strong and victorious name.